Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. And today we are excited to be joined by one of the United States' foremost experts on intelligence, national security and foreign policy, our friend Michael Morrell. Michael had an incredibly distinguished government career, spending 33 years at the Central Intelligence Agency, including three years as the deputy director and two stints as the acting director of the CIA. Throughout his long career, Michael has been a primary witness to some of the most important moments in American history, including being with President George W. Bush on September 11, 2001, and in the Situation Room with President Barack Obama during the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Pakistan. Michael spent 14 of his 33 years at the CIA focused on East Asia and remains one of the most preeminent commentators on U.S. foreign policy in the region. Michael also hosts his own podcast, which is excellent. It's called Intelligence Matters, and we encourage our listeners to subscribe to it if they are not already. He's gotten very used to asking the questions on his show, so we're looking forward to turning the tables on you today. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, Welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast. It's great to have you here. It is great to be here, guys. So, Michael, uh, we think of you as one of the preeminent intelligence professionals over the last three decades. And you've really been at the forefront of uh, the counterterrorism effort, as well as starting your career on East Asia as an economics professional. I wonder if you could just give us a sense of where we are. Where is the country today in the war on terror or fight against terrorism? And maybe you could talk a little bit about... uh, you know, the president's assertion that ISIS has been uh, defeated. And it, it gives us a sense that we've turned a corner. And I, I want to get your thoughts, just get right right into the to the subject matter that, that you are so good at. Sure. So ISIS has not been defeated. Um, we've, we've taken away the caliphate. We've taken away the land that they control. Um, but there's still tens of thousands of them in Iraq and Syria, now in hiding, now underground, a more traditional kind of terrorist group. Uh, and not only in Iraq and Syria, but their ideology um, has metastasized um, a- around the world. Um, and there are places where uh, they have significant influence, including in Afghanistan. Um, so it has not been defeated. My sense is that we're in a lull at the moment in terms of the threat to the United States, but only a lull. You know, probably the most important thing I learned in my involvement in counterterrorism is that if you don't keep the pressure on a terrorist group, they tend to bounce back um, very quickly. And we've seen that over and over and over again. And so my sense is that um, we're going to take, we're going to ease off a little bit here and we're going to see an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS or something with a completely different name pop up someplace else in the world and we'll be right back in the soup again. That's my sense. I think the other really important point here is that that I think post 9-11, the United States and its allies um, became exceptional at dealing with terrorists who already exist. 
at dealing with terrorists who want to kill us, of keeping them out of the United States, of going after them wherever they are in the world and taking them off the battlefield one way or the other. But what we and our allies have failed horribly at is getting at um, what causes radicalization in the first place. But your critics will say this is kind of the soft side and we should really be focused on going out and eliminating uh, the bad guys. And, uh, and what you're suggesting is a more thoughtful approach uh, to reduce the pool of recruits to begin with. So I think, right, I understand why we have, we've focused on the area we focused, right? If, if there's a couple of gang members trying to break into your home and kill your family, you are focused on one thing and one thing only, stopping them. And the last thing you're thinking about are the socioeconomic conditions that created the yeah. gang in the first place, right? right? And how do you get your arms around that? So that was part of why we chose to focus where we chose. The other is that getting at those underlying factors is extraordinarily difficult. You know that, right? Um, and it's not something we can do on our own. It's something that that we and our allies have to do. It's something that the leaders of Muslim countries have to do. It's something that Muslim teachers and Muslim clerics and Muslim parents have to do. This is, is a very difficult job. But until we do that, we're going to be dealing with this problem of extremism for, I think, generations. So I think my kids' generation and my grandkids' generation is still going to be fighting this fight. We just happen to be in a law right now. So, Mike, let me draw you out on that a little bit, and I just want to ask a direct question. Now, you, you're unusual in that uh, I first knew you uh, as an Asianist, probably one of the leading figures in the agency involved in understanding what the challenges and opportunities for the United States uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. But you spent most of your time uh, over the last 20 years working on these enormous challenges in the Middle East and South Asia. So I, I want to ask you about the return from that incredible strategic investment in the, in the Middle East and South Asia. So as you look back since 2001, um, are we, I, I think it's a hard question to ask, are we better off? But do you think that the level and extent of our investment in that region is um, is wise, or should we start thinking much more about diversifying, again, uh, more towards the Asia-Pacific, where clearly the lion's share of the history of the 21st century is going to be written? So, so I'd make two points. One is that I think we over-invested in hard power post-9-11. You know, we went for the military solution to the problem. Um, and I, look, I understand why. Um, but we overinvested in in hard power and underinvested in soft power as it relates to terrorism and as it relates to the Middle East. So that's kind of point one. Mm -hmm. Point two is that the future of the world is in East Asia. There is just no doubt about it, right? The most important relationship um, for what the world is going to look like over the next 25 or 50 years is the relationship between Washington and Beijing. So we better get that right. And our continuing focus on, on wars, right, in the Middle East, um, I think to some extent takes us away from where the future really is and where we need to be focused on. Can I ask you about uh, that in particular, the, the Beijing-Washington question and how important it is? And 
When we go back again over the course of your career, the intelligence community has had these incredible successes and has gone out and helped us really neutralize a lot of threats around the world. But as you write in really your fantastic book from a couple of years ago, The Great War of Our Time, you also write about the misses and the failure to see around corners, whether it's Arab Spring, whether it's the consequences of the Iraq invasion, and I just wonder about the IC's predictive capacity, for example, on what's happening with China, with our China relationship. How do, how do we take into account? Because there's two very different schools of thought about whether this is going to be our new Cold War or whether this can be a, a country we can engage with. How do we take in the information that's coming from the intelligence community on this question? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think we did a, pretty good job on thinking through where China was headed. Um, it wasn't perfect, but I think we did a pretty good job. Um, I think, you know, in, in, in the Clinton administration, um, we spent a lot of time focusing on the potential economic opportunities for the United States in a modernizing, rapidly growing uh, uh, East Asia. Um, I remember briefing President Clinton um, before his first APEC summit on the opportunities for the United States in what we saw as very rapid growth in the region. And we looked out 10 years and we looked out 20 years. And I remember before I left the agency, I went back and looked at that and we actually underestimated the economic growth that that we saw. So, so you know, we painted a picture of we got to be involved in this region for our own economic well-being. I think we got that right. Um, I think that, like many people, um, and you, you wrote a terrific piece on this in Foreign Affairs, like many people, we had an assumption. I, I think it was more an assumption than analysis that as China got rich, it would get more liberal with a small L. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so far has turned out to be not quite right. Um, I do think when she came to power, we were pretty clear-eyed in who he was and um, what kind of leader he was going to be and and where he was going to take China from a domestic political perspective. Um, and then um, the kind of pressures he was under for China to exercise a little bit more influence in the region and the world. So I think we were pretty clear-eyed about that. Um, but I do think we did miss that same piece that everybody else missed about uh, about liberalization in China. So, Michael, let me ask you about that. So I, I remember when I was in government, um, there was a period before uh, President Xi came to power that, frankly, we had pretty good insights into how senior Chinese thought about various things, government and issues associated with reform, military planning and the like. I think over time, however, it feels at least to me that Chinese abilities to curtail some of those insights have really come to pass. And when you ask people who are really involved in the formulation and execution of American foreign policy and defense strategy, they will often say that some of the key questions associated with China, decision-making patterns, specifics about who's in the room, um, sort of directional indicators that we don't have 
as much or as good insights as we had at one time. Is that accurate? So I have to be careful what I say here, yes, obviously. Of yeah. um, we got police outside. Yeah, any, exactly. Any moment. Exactly. I would not look good in orange. Um, but I do think the Chinese have become very good at, at counterintelligence, countering what it sees as its adversaries' attempts to collect intelligence, right? Um, and so it has gotten harder. Right. And, and in terms of getting harder, there are fewer insights. Right. And there are more questions. Um, and I do think I do think it's a responsibility of the intelligence community to figure out how to get it done in any case. I remember President Bush saying to me once, look, I know this job is hard, but I expect you to do it. And I often use that with my officers as a way to kind of prod them a little bit. But it has gotten harder. You know, one of the interesting things about your history, you've been in the room with leaders. I wonder if you could just take a couple of minutes to the extent that you're comfortable and compare and contrast the style with which President Bush and President Obama, the two presidents that you served most closely with, thought about and dealt with intelligence matters. It's a great question. Um, and I'm very comfortable talking about it. I have great admiration for both men. Um, I think the first thing I'd say is 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 there's a huge similarity. Hmm. And the huge similarity is that both of them had a thirst for intelligence. Both of them had a thirst for information and um, a thirst for understanding um, what was happening, what was happening in the other place, and more importantly, how their counterparts saw the world and how their counterparts saw them. And it's a really important job of an intelligence officer is to give your leader the other guy's perspective, right? Um, so that that was a similarity. And I, I think it was uh, less about the two men and more about where we are in terms of the history of the world um, and the many, many issues that we face and how many of those issues are first and foremost intelligence issues, which means um, if you don't have intelligence, you can't understand a problem, you can't make policy, and in many cases, you can't carry out that policy. So I think that that was the cause of that similarity. Then you very quickly get to differences. Um, differences in how they absorbed information. So President Bush best absorbed information um, through a discussion by, by having a conversation about it. So a typical briefing of President Bush was him either skimming a piece in the president's daily brief or me briefing him on it. And then um, a two-part conversation, a part with me where he's trying to understand better what it is we were saying and asking me questions about it, um, about the substance of it. And then a conversation with uh, his policy people about, so what does this mean from a policy perspective? Um, and for President Obama, he best absorbed information by reading it, um, usually alone. You know, President Obama didn't like reading things when somebody else was sitting there chatting. He really wanted to concentrate. So he, he read his PDB at breakfast all by himself and then would meet later with the DNI in a briefer to have a conversation about it. But he, that's how he absorbed it. Um, I think the other difference was that um, President Bush, for good or bad, um, and I saw it both ways, 
um, for good and bad, was an intuitive thinker. So the policy answer would come to President Bush intuitively. Mm. And for President Obama, it was a very logical, mm. step-by-step process. Um, so both leaders asked a lot of questions. I saw President Obama's questions as, as very logical as I'm trying to figure out what the right approach is. Do we know anything about how the current crop of briefers experience their engagement with President uh, Trump? So we don't. I don't. You know, I only know what I read in the paper. Um, my sense is that, um, based on what I read, uh, my sense is that uh, the briefings don't happen all that often. Um, that they ha- that they they occurred more frequently when Mike Pompeo was the director at CIA because the president liked Mike. He wanted Mike there. Um, Mike went almost every day. Um, I think the briefings have become um, less frequent since Mike left and Gina took over. Um, And I don't think the president is um, as anywhere near as engaged as uh, President Bush and President Obama were in in having a conversation, having a back and forth uh, discussion about the substance of the issue that you're talking about. Let me um, follow up on that a little bit because President's gone, President Trump has gone a, a lot farther in terms of how he views the intelligence community. And uh, it has not been, uh, let's just say it hasn't been entirely positive. Um, and there have been kind of a, a series of things that he said fairly uh, critical from the senior leaders, in, including after this annual threat assessment, he called them extremely passive and naive after Helsinki. We saw him very publicly side with Putin and reject the work of intelligence officers. Uh, even prior to that, he referred to to uh, them as Nazis and you know re- very very harsh language. Uh, just give us your sense of what this does. Yeah, uh, let me make a couple points. Yeah. Uh, this is really important. The first point: remember, I talked about the importance of seeing things from the other guy's perspective. Mm. So let's look at this for a second from his perspective, right? So what did he see? So during the campaign, he saw a former director of CIA and a former director of NSA, Mike Hayden, really slice and dice him publicly um, in terms of critiquing his views of the world, um, his, his policy sense, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he saw a former deputy director of CIA, me, um, endorse his opponent um, and call him an unwitting agent of the Russian Federation. So he must have thought to himself, what is it with these intelligence guys? Mm. Are these guys political? Um, And then he watched as on a couple of occasions, it wasn't often, but a couple of occasions where John Brennan, the currently serving director um, would say something publicly that that came across as being critical of the president, then candidate Trump. Um, for example, um, President Trump said he would, um, during the campaign, would rip up the Iran nuclear deal on the first day. And John publicly at a talk at Harvard publicly said that would be an act of folly. And so, you know, that, that was a direct, direct response from a current director of CIA to a, to, to a person running for president. He must have saw that and said, what's going on here? Um, You'll remember that um, when he became the Republican nominee, that he received 
his first intelligence briefing. And within 24 to 48 hours, there were leaks about that briefing and how Mike Flynn had misbehaved um, and had overly challenged the people briefing him. Um, so much so to the point of, of somebody having to put their hand on Mike's knee to calm him down. Well, that leaked. And what's the president supposed to think in terms of where that came from? Um, and then he becomes president, and within a few days, there's leaks that he's not taking his PDB briefing. Right? So he must have seen all that and concluded that this is incorrectly concluded. He misconnected the dots. Mm -hmm. But I think he concluded that this is, this is a political organization. Mm. Um, and, he, and he actually, you'll remember he actually said, things will be different when my guys take over, right? Implying that maybe I can use these organizations politically for political effect. Um, so I think that he, he came to the wrong conclusion, but he was looking at some data points that I think some of us who are involved in that maybe needed to think a little bit more about before we did what we did. Mm -hmm. um, the second point I'd make is that presidents are allowed to disagree with the intelligence that's presented to them. Mm -hmm. They get information from a lot of different places. They get information from other parts of the government, from State Department, from Defense Department, all over the place. They get, they get information from outside government. They get information from friends and businessmen, and right? And, and so they're putting, the, they're putting together their own picture of the world. So there were plenty of times when President Bush would say to me, I don't buy what you're telling me here. You haven't convinced me. Or where President Obama would say, you know, I have a little bit of a different view here. Perfectly acceptable particularly when it's in a give and take and back and forth. It's not okay to do it publicly. And the reason it's not okay to do it publicly is it puts intense pressure on the leadership of the intelligence community to start shading what they say and how you say it about issues, whether publicly or in privately, right? Um, which is at the end of the day, the death knell to intelligence because policymakers listen to it because they think it's objective and they think that they're, you're not, you don't have an ax to grind with regard to politics or policy. You're just telling it as you see it and nothing gets in the way of that. And I think when the president critiques publicly, he puts intense pressure on the community to come to his side of the fence. And that's a dangerous thing. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that clarification and a really helpful answer. I, I want to focus back on you, though, because your career is so um, fascinating and impressive, but you also were there at some of our most important moments in the last, uh, again, several decades. And I want you to give the listeners a sense of what that, for example, that decade was like from the tragic events of 9-11 to the point where um, bin Laden was was captured, and what your life was like as a as a briefer, as a as a senior uh, person within the IC. I, I recall reading in your book how you know people would be just shocked to hear this. You were getting up at twelve thirty in the morning. Most people are going to bed around that time, and you were heading into the into the office at your desk by two a.m. Um, it was just a whole different world. Just take us into that. Give us a glimpse into what things were like. Sure. So maybe the place to start is um, 
is September 11th itself. Um, so I was President Bush's daily intelligence briefer from January 4th, 2001 to January 4th, 2002. So I was with him every day um, for about a half hour, 45 minutes during the week and sometimes two, two and a half hours on the weekends um, on Saturdays um, uh, talking to him about what was going on in the world. Um, and, and, you know, that was whether he was traveling overseas or traveling domestically or on vacation in, in his, at his ranch in Texas or in the Oval Office. Um, so I was with him on September 10th when Air Force One went wheels up um, to do a couple of education events in Florida. Um, I think the best way to summarize uh, September 11th is to say it was, for me, um, a mixture of the intensity of doing my job um, with the surreal so an example of the intensity of doing the job was um, on the flight from Barksdale Air Force Base where we had set down to kick off the plane, anybody who had, who had nothing to do with national security and take on food and water because we had no idea how long we'd be flying around. On the flight from there to Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, where the president was going to do a secure video teleconference with his national security team, he asked to see me. So I met with him in his, um, in his office, pretty, pretty small place. You guys know that pretty small place. Um, and it was me, uh, his chief of staff, Andy Card and him. And he looked at me and he said, um, Michael, who did this? Well, and what I, was he like? Was he stoic, stress, stoic, stoic. Yeah. And I told him, Mr. President, I haven't seen any intelligence that would take us to a perpetrator. Um, and so you're going to get my best guess. You're not going to get you know, hard facts here. And he said, I understand the caveat and I get on with it. I said, Mr. President, there's two nation states who have the capability to do this, Iran and Iraq, but neither one of them has anything to gain and both of them have everything to lose from doing something like this. So I said, Mr. President, I think when we get to the end of the trail here, um, we're going we're gonna to find bin Laden and we're going to find Al-Qaeda. And I told him I was so so certain of that that I would bet my children's future on it. I've never told my kids that. Yeah, but you put it um, in the book, though. I know. Um, then he, um, then he said to me, um, "When will we know?" And that's kind of a direct question you get from a president, um, and there's not an answer to it, right? Um, so I gave him a history of previous attacks on the United States and how long it took us to know. And in some cases, it was a couple days, and in some cases. In one case, it was a year. In the case of Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, it took us a year to find out that the trail went back to the Iranians. Um, so I said, Mr. I'm sorry, I ran through all that. And I said, Mr. President, it may take us, it may take us some time. And then again, you know, we may know soon. Later, I had to actually give him intelligence that a foreign government had provided to us on that day that said, this is the first of what will be two waves of attacks mm -hmm. on the nation. So you imagine what he's just been through and then his intelligence briefer is telling him that this may be, right, the first of two. So that's an example of the, of the intensity of doing the job. An example of the surreal was, and there were many moments like this, um, on final approach to Andrews, the president's military aide, the guy who carries the nuclear football, was looking out the left side of the aircraft. And he saw me looking at him and he waved me over and he said, look, and I looked out the window and there was a fighter jet on the wingtip of Air Force One. Mm. And he said, we're from the DC Air National Guard. There's another one on the other wingtip. And it was so close that you could see the pilot, you could see the pilot's facial features and you could see the pilot looking at us. Mm. 
And the president's military aide said to me, do you know what they're there for? And I didn't because every commercial flight in the United States had been, had been grounded at that point. The only flights in the air were military flights. And I said, no. And he said, if someone fires a surface-to-air missile at Air Force One as we're landing, it's their job to put themselves between that missile and Air Force One. Amazing. And as you looked out, you could see the Pentagon and you could see the smoke still billowing out of the Pentagon. So that's an example of the surreal. Um, and then I spent, you know, literally a decade deeply, deeply involved in terrorism and counterterrorism. So can I, I, I want to ask you more about this, Michael. I know it's hard to, to go back, but, you know, you talked to some of the participants, the active participants during this period, and it's fascinating. It's almost as if they went through this, you know, incredibly deep experience, almost hard to talk about, uh, you know, fierce bureaucratic rivalries, uh, lots of discord, huge amount of sort of public um, maneuvering. Did you, did you sense that as well? Did you see it, the various, you know, between vice president's office, folks around the president, the Pentagon, the State Department, were you able to sense that or perceive it from your vantage? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, it didn't take long after 9-11 for the search for um, who to blame, right, um, began. Um, and it's, you know, it's always deeply ironic to me that the two organizations that were most clear-eyed about the al-Qaeda threat to the United States, um, the FBI and the CIA were the ones who ended up taking the blame. Um, and certainly there, there was some blame to accept. Clearly, clearly the intelligence community didn't penetrate the Al-Qaeda inner circle to know what was being planned, right? That's an intelligence failure. Um, you know, post 9-11, we routinely had penetrated Al-Qaeda enough to see plot after plot after plot after plot. But, but my sense, right, my sense, although we became we in the Bureau became the punching bag that this failure um, was really a national one. Yes, it was a failure of intelligence, but it was also a failure of policy by both the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. Um, and, it was in, 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 and it was a bigger failure. You know, it's very interesting to me that, that almost every one of the recommendations made by the Gore Commission on aviation safety, and there's a whole chapter on aviation security, had those recommendations been put in place when they were made, the hijackers on 9-11 probably would not have been able to do what they did. So, and who fought that? The airlines, right? The airlines didn't want, did not want to inconvenience their passengers. So this was, this was a national failure. So, uh, Michael, I want to bring you back to some of our issues that we deal with uh, at the Asia Group and sort of the focus of our podcast. So, uh, President, you're, you talked about being asked hard questions. I want to ask you a hard question. You, you spoke, I think, uh, knowledgeably about China and the challenge it presents. So if someone, if, if, if in the future a leader asks you, is China willing to coexist with the United States, both as great powers on the global stage, or are they ultimately interested in being the leading state and are determined 
to find themselves in that situation? If you had to basically choose between those two worlds, how would you come down? I think the answer is different depending on what kind, what part of the world you're talking about. So I think in East Asia, they want to be the dominant power. Um, what does that mean in practice? It means they want the countries in East Asia to think first and foremost about what's in the best interest of China before those countries think about what's in their own best interest. And it's not that they don't want the U.S. in Asia. They just want people thinking about their interests first. I think in the rest of the world, it's a little bit different. They want more influence, but they don't, they're not looking for as much as they're looking for in East Asia. Um, really interesting to me, somebody, somebody asked me, a client asked me a question um, about a year ago, how does China see us? And so what I did is I went to the website of the two think tanks that I know are associated with Chinese intelligence. Um, it's not a secret. Um, and I, you know, I, I took Chinese language documents and I threw them into Google Translate. And boy, is that a powerful tool. Okay. Um, and I read all this stuff. And what I saw was the following. Um, and it was, it, it's two sides of a coin. And it's really interesting. One side of the coin every is going to resonate with everybody. The other side of the coin will resonate with, 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 with you guys, but I think with, with few others. So the side of the coin that resonates with everybody is China, China believes that when we set up the post-World War II order, we did so in a way that benefited us, that we wrote those rules in a way to benefit us. Incorrect reading, right, of what we did. We thought, we thought a world in which everybody was rising, right, was in our self-interest, was in our best interest. So we was broadly defined. Um, and, and they go on to say in these articles that when we start writing the rules, and that's going to happen because we're gaining more influence and power, we're going to write them in a way that benefits us just like they did. Flip the coin over, and at the very same time they say that, they say, gosh, we really benefited from the world that the United States put into place. And we really benefited from the fact that the U.S. was the world's policeman um, and took care of, made the world a more stable place that allowed us to prosper. And we don't want to play that role. That role gets in the way of commercial relationships, right? We still want the U.S. to play that role. We're worried that they're not going to. Um, and so I thought that was a very interesting um, contrast between a view commonly known, right, and a view kind of less commonly known. Now, I do think... Do you think that's a time frame issue, though, Michael? You know, you could you could argue that in the short term, that's what you might want. But maybe over the longer term, you might feel like, look, the Chinese have spent an enormous amount of money building this yeah. military capability that they might want more responsibility over time. So, so as you know, right, the military capability they've built to date, now things are starting to change, the military capability they've built to date is really, is really to deal with the Taiwan problem, right? And should Taiwan ever declare independence, they want an ability to act and have us not be able to stop them. Um, largely the capability they built. Now it's, it's expanding beyond that. Um, my sense, my sense is that they're reluctantly getting involved more militarily in the world, right? In terms of they now have two bases outside of China, one in Pakistan, one in Djibouti. There's, there's discussions uh, about others. And that's more, that's more of a reflection, I think, of uh, 
what they perceive as a U.S. withdrawal from the world and, and a perception that this relationship is not heading in the right direction. So I think if we were more engaged in the world and that the U.S.-China relationship was more balanced um, and was, was healthier, I think you'd see a different, a different Chinese reaction. Can I ask you one more uh, regional question uh, on South Asia and specifically on, on Pakistan, a country you s- spent a lot of time working with, obviously from the very dramatic and the bin Laden raid uh, to the day-to-day relationship uh, working with the intelligence professionals in, in Pakistan. But this, um, I don't know what's the word to use, this kind of alliance or arrangement that the Pakistanis have with uh, extremist groups and terrorist groups operating within their territory. Uh, I know we've had so many conversations with them over the years, uh, sometimes I also know our position has had to be more nuanced because of cooperation we may have been getting from the Pakistanis in Afghanistan. But there is a sense that uh, the patience has kind of run out over successive administrations now. And where, where do you see the, the Pakistani kind of calculus here? Is there anything to do to get them off of this reliance on these insurgent groups, which are mainly there to... to to create havoc for India and for Afghanistan and other players in in the region? So I don't think so. It was President Obama's Pakistan policy in the first term was to get the Pakistanis to see their strategic environment in in a real way, right? Um, They they still see India, and, and I think, you know, for the foreseeable future will, see India as an existential threat to the state of Pakistan. It's not. It's just not. The Indians stopped focusing on Pakistan a long time ago, right? And they're focusing on their economic future. But because the Pakistanis are so obsessed with this perceived existential threat, they've both organized their society in order to protect themselves from that threat. So they've given an immense amount of power to the military, um, and much less power to the civilian government. And the government, therefore, makes choices that I don't believe, and many people don't believe, are in the best long-term interest of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Pakistanis spend more money on nuclear weapons than they do on education. That's a really profound statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use terrorism, right, as a, as a tool against the Indians, um, both in Kashmir and occasionally inside India itself, and then also in Afghanistan, um, because they fear Indian influence in Afghanistan. Um, And so they've created terrorist groups, right, to be a tool of theirs in this struggle against India. Um, and, And what they didn't realize is that it's impossible to keep those terrorist groups under control. And that eventually that comes back to bite you. Mm. You know, I believe that Pakistan, at the end of the day, may be the most dangerous country in the world. Mm. The population is exploding. The demographics are awful. The economy is going nowhere. It simply can't provide the jobs that need to be provided for the young people who are entering the labor force. Um, You know, the education system is literally broken. I mean, I went to Pakistan more often than I went to any other country when I was deputy director. Mm. And when I mean broken, you, you can see, 
children in school sitting on top of rubble in class. Mm. Um, there's no wonder that many Pakistani parents send their kids to madrasas and we know what happens to a small percentage of the kids who go there. Mm. The extremism is, is um, growing from a societal perspective. It's growing within the military. So it is not impossible, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but five years from now, 10 years from now that you could have a, a color revolution, Arab Spring style movement in the streets of Islamabad that ends up with um, an extremist government there with nuclear weapons. That's what's so scary. Yeah. So Michael, thank you for that uh, insight. Terrific. And Michael, we really uh, appreciate you sitting down with us. You've given us so much to ponder, both in the past and in the future. We really appreciate it. We want to encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to Michael's podcast, Intelligence Matters, and we appreciate him being with us here today. Yeah, and Michael, um, I just wanted to, to thank you as well for your, again, your decades of service. And again, not only encourage folks to... Uh, to listen to the podcast, but also go pick up a copy of the book now book, in book um, is terrific. Pa paperback. I think not only is it important to give us a sense of the of the day to day of what was happening, but also um, the incredible service that intelligence officers and intelligence professionals uh, give to this country on a day to day basis around the world, often in very dangerous conditions, and and most of the time. Uh, very unheralded and behind the scenes. And that's uh, critically important that I think the country understands uh, the service that they provide. So thank you for, for being here. Uh, thanks for all the folks for, for listening. Rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Michael, thank you so much. Thank You're you. welcome. It's great to be with you guys. Great. Thanks. Thanks.